Well, here we are at the start of uh, another new year, 2017. But what a year 2016 turned out to be. A real roller coaster, wasn't it? And who'd have predicted Brexit or David Cameron resigning? Donald Trump being elected? I mean, an incredible year uh, on the political landscape as many things are changing. Um, alongside that, though, we had over 14,000 earthquakes that were greater than magnitude 6. Um, other earthquakes beside that, but just 14,000 greater than magnitude 6. And we see each year at the moment this kind of number, earthquakes all over the earth in diverse places. And interesting, isn't it, that Jesus said something along those lines, that we'd see this before his return. Uh, over 1,800 terrorist attacks worldwide, uh, which actually resulted then in 17,000 related deaths. I mean, you start to feel things maybe spiralling out of control. Uh, and not to mention all the high-profile celebrities that have died in the last 12 months. Now, of course, people die all the time, but when it's a celebrity, it makes the news, and it just serves to remind us that we're mortal. Our own mortality is a very real thing. For many, though, in this world, life is uncertain. They don't know what's going to happen. And these things are very unsettling. Now, in contrast, for Christians, the Bible says that we should have great comfort and peace and even joy when these things start to occur. And even death itself is something for Christians that we shouldn't be afraid of. What we're going to do in this session is to look, a very timely reminder at the start of a new year, at one of the, I think, probably most fabulous, incredible, amazing topics in the Bible, and that is the rapture of the church. But we need to ask, is it a controversial doctrine, as some would perceive it to be, or is it, as I believe the Apostle Paul says, our blessed hope? And if so, we really need to grasp and understand this. What we're going to do is go through, just looking down a number of different aspects of this. Firstly, ask the question, why bother? Why even bother to study this in the first place? Secondly, we're going to ask the question, what does rapture mean? So if you're not sure, we'll explain. Then, does the word rapture occur in the Bible? And then does the Bible teach that the church will be raptured? Because that's really the big question that we want to answer. And then, if so, why? Interestingly, a lot of people, when they study this, don't tend to address the why question. But it's a very important question. If the rapture is to be a real event that takes place, then why? Why would God do such a thing? And then, when? Is there any way we can have an indication as to the timing of these things? Then we're going to conclude and just look at some lessons that we can draw from a Jewish wedding. We're very familiar with our own weddings in this country where we have typically the engagement and then the wedding and the wedding ceremony and so on. Well, there's a lot we can draw from a Jewish wedding and there's some examples in scripture that allude to Jewish weddings. So we'll look at that. Uh, and then just to, to round it off, we're just going to glean some lessons from the book of Jeremiah and then finally conclude by asking the question, what should our response be to these things? So before we jump in, let's bow our hearts. Let's ask the Lord just to, to bless this time of study. So Father, now we just pray that you lead us, guide us, open our eyes and ears, help us to understand things that are spiritual. Lord, we recognize that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. So Lord, we just ask your Holy Spirit to open our eyes now. Uh, Father, help us to comprehend these things. Uh, Lord, not to be frightened, but Lord, to be excited. And Lord, to be edified and encouraged as we study your word now together. For we ask it in Jesus' name. So let's ask the question then, why bother? Well, to start with, let's go to Luke chapter 19. A really incredible passage of scripture. Verse 41 we're going to pick up and we read, And when he, that is Jesus, was come near, that's to Jerusalem, 
he beheld the city and wept over it. I mean, what a statement that is, first of all, that Jesus gets close to the city of Jerusalem and he cries. Something was weighing heavy upon his heart, obviously. And he then says, if thou had known, even thou, at least in this thy day. This was a very specific day that Jesus was approaching Jerusalem. He says, in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. This is incredible. Jesus holds Israel accountable for knowing what day this was. And as a result of them not knowing, he pronounces national blindness on Israel. Now, this day was a very specific day. It was actually 173,880 days earlier that the prophet Daniel had been given an incredible prophecy by the angel Gabriel. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 9 that foretold the very day the Messiah would come and present himself to the nation of Israel. And all through Jesus' ministry, if you remember, he healed people and he said, See thou tell no man. And people wanted to take him and make him king. The feeding of the 5,000 is a great example because we have there the people wanting to come and make him their king. He he feeds them, he fulfills their, their physical desires and needs. But he turns away, he goes down from the crowd and goes across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. He won't allow them to take him and make him their king. Right up until this day, when he arranges the whole event, he sends his disciples off to go and get this donkey and to bring it back to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah. Jesus intentionally doing this and then rides into Jerusalem. The Pharisees are furious because they recognize what Jesus is doing. He's setting himself up and saying, I am the Messiah. Now, the few that were gathered on that road into Jerusalem recognized, but the nation, by and large, totally missed it. They weren't ready for their king. Verse 43 carries on and says, For the day shall come upon thee, Jesus speaking to Israel, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round about, and keep thee in on every side. And shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Now this is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. When enemies, the enemies of Israel, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem. They laid siege to it. And eventually they get through, they get into the city. The temple is set on fire. As a result, the gold in the temple starts to melt. It goes all over the stones. And so the Romans literally take the temple apart, stone by stone, to recover the gold. And this prophecy is fulfilled in great detail. But again, Jesus says, this will come upon them because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. So my question, and the question we started out with a moment ago, is why should we even bother studying things like the rapture? Well, it's simply because of this, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. God held Israel accountable for knowing the signs of the times. We read in Matthew 16, the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting, desired him that he would show a sign from heaven. And he answered and said unto them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the signs of the times? 
You see, again, Israel were held accountable for knowing these things, for understanding the prophetic scriptures. So why do we think sometimes the church is exempt from understanding these things? Why is it so many Christians tend to turn away from understanding prophecy and see it maybe as the the domain of the scholars or pastors or academics, but not the remit of every Christian to understand these things? Notice what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. And then in 2 Timothy 4.8, we're told there that a crown of righteousness is promised unto all them that love his appearing. So we should be looking forward to and getting ready and being excited about the return of Jesus and all the things connected to this. Again, back in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says there, but you brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. The book of Revelation begins with this incredible statement, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servant the things which must shortly come to pass. You see, the book of Revelation was given not to make things obscure, but so that we would understand. It was given to show us, to show his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And in Hebrews 9.28, we read unto them that look for him, shall he appear the second time? Well, I think we would all want to be part of that category, that we are the ones to whom he shall appear. Unto them that look for him, though. And that's the key. In the book of Job, uh, chapter 24, Job asks a really important question. He's going through this debate dealing with his so-called friends and they're blaming him and saying that, well, your sickness and your calamities, all these things have come upon you as a result of your sin. And Job's responding, but then he just gets this point in Job 24, verse 1, and says, Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? It's almost as if Job just pauses and suddenly goes, hang on, God knows everything. God knows the end from the beginning. So God knows what's going to happen next. So why is it that those that say they know him, those who are his, why don't they understand the days in which we live? It's a really important question and one that really is answered in the New Testament because we should understand. So like my bother question is quite simply because we are supposed to know. God wants us not to be in darkness, but to understand the days in which we live and the implications to us as believers, as husbands, as fathers, as mothers, as wives, as children. We need to understand how these things impact us and how for their we, we can use these things to reach out to others as well. Let's go and ask the question then, what does rapture actually mean? Well, to simply define it, we'd say being physically taken from earth to heaven without dying. That's what we're talking about when we say rapture. Now, there's a number of examples of this in scripture. If we go back to Genesis chapter 5, we pick up verse 22, and we read there of a man by the name of Enoch. And it says, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5, and then Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. If you look at this list in Genesis 5, you'll see that everybody else in that list, and it says, uh, it gets to the end of their life, and we're told, and he died. But not for Enoch. Enoch didn't die. He was translated from earth to heaven without dying. We've got another account in Second Kings. In verse 11, we read of Second Kings 2, 
And it came to pass that as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. So Elijah just raptured, taken up from earth to heaven as Elisha looks on. In the book of Revelation, we have another account. There's two witnesses that are given this job, this ministry of witnessing for three and a half years in Jerusalem to the world. And then the world, they get fed up with these people speaking about God and so on. And they end up putting these two witnesses to death. But in verse 11 of Revelation 11 tells us that after three days or three and a half days, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. That will happen when people rise from the dead in front of you. And verse 12 says, And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies beheld them. So all of a sudden these two individuals are literally caught up, again resurrected, they're caught up alive into heaven. And probably the best known example of rapture that we have in scripture is found in the book of Acts. And we pick up in verse 9 of chapter 1. And when he had spoken these things, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus himself literally translated from earth into heaven, raptured, if you will. It's interesting to note that these two men that are are there, that speak to the disciples, actually speak of Jesus coming back in like manner. Jesus is caught up into the clouds, and we're told effectively he's going to come back in the same manner. Now, at the second coming, Jesus will come and it will be as lightning flashing from the east to the west and every eye will see him and so on. But this implies a slightly different situation, which is just curious because we'll come back to this and we'll look at that in a while. Okay, so what does rapture mean? Again, being physically taken from earth to heaven without dying. And as we've seen, there's clear examples of this in scripture. So our conclusion is quite simply that the concept of a rapture is biblical. Does the word rapture therefore occur in the Bible? Well, no and yes. It doesn't occur in the English translations as the word rapture, but we do have the word in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, caught up. Now, it actually comes from a Greek word, harpazo, which literally means to snatch away, to lift, to transport, to pluck or carry away, or rapture. Uh, the Latin Vulgate, which was translated by a man called Jerome in about 400 AD, uh, in that version, uh, he used the word rapturous uh, in this particular verse in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And it's from that word, rapturous, from the uh, Latin, that we have our word rapture. Um, so the word rapture is not found in the English translations, but we do have the word translated as caught up. And it means exactly the same thing. So let's go swiftly on and ask the question, then, does the Bible teach that the church will be raptured? This really is the big question. And as we said at the start, some see this as a controversial doctrine, but I don't think it should be. This 
I believe is something that we should be very excited about. This should be one of the most talked about topics in the Christian church. Let's look at this verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because this really explains the details and sets the scene for us. So we read verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul speaking, he says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Well, there you go, once again. Guys, I want you to understand this. And he says, Concerning them which are asleep, i.e. those that have died, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Paul draws a comparison there between the world who have no hope when people die. We've seen that through this last year, but compared to believers who have great hope because he says, and this is incredible. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Just think for a moment what Paul is saying there. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes the point that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith. And here he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, just as assuredly as that, we can be sure that God will bring with Jesus those who have died. And he goes on and says, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. That's the word in the King James, prevent in King James time. Uh, that word simply meant proceed. We've kind of changed the, the meaning of it, kind of turned it round about. But it simply means we'll not go before those that have died. And it says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. They're the ones that Jesus will bring back with him. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up. There's our word, uh, rapturous or hapazo in the Greek, together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul says, this is a great thing, guys. This is something we should be able to comfort each other with, knowing that just as assuredly as Jesus rose from the dead, he will come back and we also will be caught up to meet him in the air and will be taken back to the place that he's gone to prepare for us. We'll look at the other scriptures in a moment. But I just want to highlight something else here before we move on, because in verse 17, Paul says, then we which are alive. You see, Paul believed that he would be part of this group that would be living at the time that Jesus came back. What does that tell us? It tells us that Paul expected this event to occur within his lifetime. In other words, Paul was expecting it imminently. He didn't see this as something that was a long way off. He was expecting it at any moment. And this is the key, that this event could happen at any moment in time. We don't have to wait for any prophecies to be fulfilled or anything to happen. We're now just waiting for the Lord in his timing to descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then we who are alive are going to be caught up and together we're going to meet the Lord in the clouds. And then we're going to go back to heaven from there. And as Paul says, what a comfort that should be for us. So the church will be raptured at some point in the future. And as I said, we can be as sure of this as we can of Christ's resurrection. It should be a great comfort to the church. And we're going to be united with our loved ones who have died in the faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to seeing some of those who have gone on ahead. 
particularly for me, people like my gran, such an incredible influence when I was young. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm certainly looking forward to seeing those that have gone on ahead. One of the people that I'm looking forward to seeing again is my gran. My gran went on ahead when I was just 14. She died. She was a great influence on my life, as I've said, I think, before, that I used to go down and see her after school. And she'd sit down and she'd read to me from the Bible or read to me from Oswald Chambers and so on. At the time, I didn't really fully appreciate it. But I look back now and I see the seeds that the Lord was sowing in my life uh, through my gran. And I'm going to get to see her again. You know, and all those that have died, all those that had their faith and trust in Jesus that have gone on ahead of us, we get to see them again and we spend eternity together. That's why Paul says it's such a comfort. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15 because Paul elaborates on this a little bit further. It's verse 50 of chapter 15. It says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now, Paul makes it very clear there that flesh and blood, our natural bodies, can't inherit the kingdom of God. Well, there needs to be a change. And he says that this corruption, these bodies that groan and get old and creak and have trouble getting up and getting out of bed in the morning, these bodies are not fit for eternity. We need new bodies. And he says, he tells us this mystery, that we're not all going to die, but we shall all be changed. It's very clear that Paul is saying the same thing to the Corinthians as he says to the Thessalonians. And he says it's going to happen in an atomos. That's the Greek word there, the twinkling of an eye. It's the smallest indivisible unit of time. Interesting as well that Paul says there that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. If you remember when Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room after his resurrection, he says, they think he's a ghost. And he says that a spirit does not have flesh and bone. Not flesh and blood, flesh and bone. So Jesus' resurrected body is tangible, it's real, it's physical. But it's made up of flesh and bone, not blood. You see, it would seem that our resurrected bodies are going to be made up of flesh and bone. They will be powered by the Holy Spirit. No longer will they be effectively blood drive like we are now. And it's interesting because blood has been given now for the remission of sins. The life of the flesh is in the blood, we're told in Leviticus 17.11. Blood has a very important part to play now, but our new resurrected bodies seemingly will be made of flesh and bone, not flesh and blood. Interesting, just as a, an aside there. This verse in Corinthians carries on those verse 54 and it says, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Almost poking fun at death now because Jesus has overcome death. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has risen from the dead. And now we are in this position where at this particular moment in time, we are going to be changed. These mortal, corruptible bodies are going to be transformed at the time of the rapture. OK, so let's ask the question then, why? Because I think this is really one of the, the big parts of this that so many people miss. Because there's a number of reasons why the rapture has to take place. Firstly, as we've just said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So our body's got to be changed. So one of the reasons for the rapture is to transform us, to change us into our new 
heavenly spiritual bodies that are ready for eternity. In 1 Corinthians 15, a little bit earlier in the chapter, Paul says this, he says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Really important. Because here Christ is the first fruits of those that are risen from the dead. He has his new body. But then in the right order, so when we get to the time of the rapture, we will also be resurrected with our new spiritual bodies as well. Interestingly enough, that passage goes on to tell us in 1 Corinthians that after that will then come the end in terms of the judgment that is to follow. We'll talk about that in a moment. In John 5, Jesus says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Two resurrections spoken of here, the resurrection of life, the resurrection of damnation, two specific events, one for one group, one for another. So firstly, the purpose of the rapture is to receive resurrection bodies fit for eternity. The second reason is to fulfill the promise that Jesus made to the disciples, to the church in John 14. John 14, picking up verse 2, we read, In my Father's house, Jesus said, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus gives us this incredible promise. Now, where did Jesus go? He went to his Father's house. Where was his Father's house? In heaven. A number of verses make it clear that Jesus returned to heaven. So we can deduce from that that his Father's house is in heaven. And Jesus then promises to take us back to this place that he's been preparing for us. Now, one of the reasons for this, of course, is to reward us for our labours. In Colossians 1.5, we read there, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. The hope is in heaven. So we're going to go to heaven to receive these things. Whereof you have heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. And I'm sure we're familiar with Matthew 6, verse 20 and 21. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt, and where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, we are to lay up treasures, we are to sow to the spirit, not to the flesh, and by laying up treasures, we're told that they are to be in heaven, and when we get to heaven, we're going to be able to receive these treasures, these gifts, these things that we've laid up. We'll talk uh, maybe a little bit in a while about some of those things. But clearly we are to go to heaven. So one of the purposes of the rapture is to take us from earth to heaven. And Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, here we are again, our body's being transformed, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. So Jesus, the first fruits, his body's resurrected, flesh and bone, ours are going to be transformed to be like his. The verse carries on and says, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. He's in complete control. He can do what he wants. And this is what he's told us he's going to do. 
And again, the last citizenship is in heaven. So quite clearly, and the second reason there is that Jesus will take us back to heaven as he's promised in John 14. Now, the third reason why the rapture must occur is to deliver us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse 10 tells us that we are to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, in the larger sense of speaking of God's judgment upon our iniquity and sin, and we've been spared eternal separation from God, we have been delivered, but it's also speaking specifically of the time of judgment that is coming upon the earth. In First Thessalonians 5, 1 to 9, verse 1 says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, now that's a phrase we're going to look at in just a moment, so comes as a thief in the night. For when they, the worldly, the ungodly, shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now that phrase, that that idea of a woman in childbearing, childbirth, is used throughout the scripture of this time of trouble that is to come upon the earth. Carries on and says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day, which day, the day of the Lord, should overtake you as a thief. For you are all children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And once again we're told, for God has not appointed us to wrath. And this again is very clearly in the context of avoiding escaping the day of the Lord, which is coming. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to just highlight something here, that wrath is not persecution. We are told that those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We should expect that as Christians. But that's not what is being spoken of here. This is speaking of a specific time. Twice in this passage we've seen the day of the Lord referred to. It's a time of wrath. We actually see a lot of this in the Old Testament. We'll look at a verse in a moment. But in Luke 21, there Jesus gives his account of what is going to occur in the days leading up to and preceding his return and then says after speaking of all these things he says watch you therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things well why say that if there was no way of escaping them there is clearly a way of escaping the things that shall come to pass and that we would stand before the Son of Man. Now the things Jesus had just been speaking about were all nations in distress, global turmoil, again, the day of the Lord, or the, the time of tribulation that is to come upon the earth. Now as I said, this phrase, the day of the Lord, occurs a lot in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 13, a very clear passage, verse 6 onwards reads, Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. So they are very clear what this period of time will be. It's a time of destruction as God pours out his wrath on this unbelieving world. Therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. And they shall be 
in pain as a woman that travaileth. And again, that idea used again of a woman in childbirth. And they shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Verse 9 carries on and says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, and the sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 24 and so on. So here we're told very clearly that the day of the Lord is a period of time when God will pour his wrath on the earth, and the purpose is to destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Verse 11 says, And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth, and shall remove her out of place, in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. So it's very, very clear that this period of time that's coming, the day of the Lord, is a time of God's wrath. It's God's judgment on a wicked, unbelieving, and Christ-rejecting world. So, to clarify, the reason, another reason, the third reason we're highlighting here for the rapture, is to remove the church before this time of wrath. And we'll talk more in just a moment. But the fourth reason is to take us, the church, the bride of Christ, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll talk again in just a moment, a little bit more about that. But I want to go on first to just talk about the timing of this. When will it occur? Well, as you said already, even Paul expected this in his lifetime. Now, clearly that didn't happen, but we understand very obviously from that that this is to be an event that will occur at any moment. Now, the Bible does speak very clearly about this period of time. We've already mentioned it, the time of God's wrath, the... the um, uh, The Bible does speak very clearly about this time of tribulation. It's again the day of the Lord, the time of God's wrath. In the book of Jeremiah, it's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble, because specifically Israel are going to be very impacted during this time. But we're told that it's a period of seven years. It's divided into two, three and a half year periods very clearly in the book of Revelation. The first part of it, the first three and a half years, drawing from Jesus' words in Matthew 24, are referred to as the beginning of sorrows. And the second part is referred to as the Great Tribulation, again using Jesus' words in Matthew 24. Now, some people think that the rapture will occur at the end of this period of seven years. And because it's post, it's after, they're referred to as post-tribulationists, or post-trib is often the term that's used. There are some that think that the rapture of the church will occur in the middle of this seven-year period for a variety of reasons. And so they're often referred to as mid-tribulationists or mid-trib. And then others that believe that the rapture will occur sometime before the beginning of the seven years. And because that's before, pre, they're referred to as pre-tribulationists or pre-trib. So which one of those positions is right? Well, the only one that can be consistent with this idea of imminence, i.e. that it will happen at any time, is the pre-tribulational position. Because otherwise, once the tribulation starts, you know 
that it can't occur till either the three and a half year point or the seven year point. So in other words, you're given a marker. So that doesn't fit. And there's a number of other reasons, and most significantly, because we've been promised to be delivered from the wrath to come, not to go through it and endure it and then be taken out at the end of it, which wouldn't make sense. So the idea of the mid-trib position, it denies this doctrine of imminence that Christ could return at any time. It does agree that the church must, church must be raptured before God's wrath, but ignores the fact that the whole of this period of time, the whole of the tribulation, is a period of wrath. And Revelation 6 makes that clear. For those that adopt the post-trib, and there's a lot of uh, the various sections of the church that adopt this post-tribulational view, um, and even various songs and uh, worship songs have adopted this idea. Um, you need to be careful which songs we sing, because some of them uh, have kind of taken this kind of theology. But the problem there is that the second coming, when Jesus returns, he's coming to put his feet on the earth, and he stays to establish his kingdom. Many verses make that clear. And yet at the time of the rapture, as we've already seen, he's coming to meet the church in the air and take her back to heaven, not to come to the earth at that point. Also at the second coming, Jesus comes with his saints. In the book of Jude, we see that. In Revelation 19, we see that. But at the time of the rapture, Jesus comes for his saints. He comes to collect them, again, to take them back to the place he's been preparing. At the second coming, Jesus comes to intercede on behalf of Israel at the Battle of Armageddon. That's one of the, the key reasons and the timing for the second coming is that Jesus comes to intercede on behalf of Israel. And yet at the rapture, Jesus comes not to deal with Israel, but to take the church back to heaven. At the time of the second coming, we're told that every eye will see him. And yet, at the time of the rapture, it seems like it's just that the resurrected believers, they're going to see him. Those who he brings with him from heaven and those who are still alive on the earth and we're together caught up with the Lord in the air. So there's some very distinct differences. At the second coming, Jesus is going to judge the nations. And yet at the rapture, Jesus, we find, is going to judge the church. Now, the church judgment is dealt with and uh, given to us in 1 Corinthians 3. And we're told that we will be not judged in terms of punishment, but judged in terms of rewards meted out. So those that have lived their lives, we're told, will receive, as it were, gold, silver and precious stones. The works that we've done for Christ in our life will be rewarded. And one of those rewards that we're given are crowns. Um, those that have lived their lives for worldly pursuits and pleasures even as Christians we're told that whatever they've done will be burnt up and it's analogous to wood, hay and stubble or wood, hay and straw so the second Corinthians chapter 5 also speaks of the judgment seat of Christ the actual word in the Greek is bema, the bema seat uh, you may have heard that expression and that is simply going to be this award ceremony that will take place in heaven and one of the key things that we are given as rewards for the way we've lived our lives are crowns now there's five specific crowns that are mentioned in the new testament and those crowns are given to us and then in revelation chapter 4 we find that we lay those crowns at jesus's feet as a thank you for all that he's done for us it's a gift that we get get to give back to jesus we sing the great hymn crown him with many crowns it's speaking of that moment before the throne once again the whole idea is if we're in heaven and able to give those crowns to jesus to lay them before his throne we've got to have got there 
And again, the rapture of the church is that transition from earth to heaven as the church is removed from this earth prior to that wrath being poured out. As I've said already, the book of Revelation clearly shows the church in heaven before the tribulation begins. And also the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place in heaven. Well, it would be strange for a marriage to take place if the bride's not present. And of course, the bride will be present. The church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, uh, Ephesians 5 tells us that. And that um, celebration will occur in heaven. And then afterwards, the bride of Christ and Christ himself will return to earth at the time of the second coming. And Jesus then will establish his kingdom. And we're told in a number of passages that we will rule and reign with Christ through the millennial kingdom. Now, one of the biggest problems of the timing of the rapture, for those that reject the pre-tribulational view, that suggest that we're going to go through some or part of the, the tribulation or even all of it, was the, the question really is about the sufficiency of Christ's death. Was the death of Christ sufficient to pay for all of our sin? Well, of course it was. We know very clearly, John nineteen thirteen, Jesus cries out, paid in full, or to telestai is the Greek word, that's what it means. It is finished, is the term that we have translated. And Jesus then took the wrath of God upon himself for us. Now, if the church remains for even a moment of the tribulation, a moment of God's wrath being poured out, it's a denial of the completed work of Christ. Because if Christ has paid for all of our sin, then we're not going to be judged again for that sin because it's all been paid for. So we have to be removed prior to that. A great example of this we see in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 18. The Lord has come and speaking to Abraham. Verse 23. And Abraham drew near and said, Will thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? They're looking towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's concerned for Lot, for his nephew. And he's asking the question to God. He says, peradventure, if there be 50 righteous within the city, will thou also destroy and not spare the place for 50 righteous that are therein? So he's saying, you know, God, you know, if there's 50 righteous people, would you destroy the whole city, even though there's some righteous in there? And Abraham goes on and says, that be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right you see abraham's saying god you can't destroy the righteous and the wicked at once it's not right the the, the righteous surely have got to be removed or taken out and that's exactly what we find that lot and those that come with him his wife initially and his two daughters are taken out before god can bring the judgment the angels are insistent that god can't bring the judgment until they've been removed and it's a very clear picture of the rapture of the church the church has to be removed from this earth before god can pour out his wrath on the earth now a lot of people will argue and say well this idea of the rapture you know we don't find it in the old testament well actually we do find it in the old testament and very clearly as we've already seen throughout the new testament in isaiah 26 we read there verse 20 Come, my people. Okay, well, that's very clear. God is referring to those who he says are his. Enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Okay, so the Lord is saying, come, hide yourself, come out of the way until the indignation be overpassed. And then it explains even further. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place 
to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth also shall disclose her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. So it's very clear that it's speaking of this time again, the day of the Lord, when the Lord will come to judge the inhabitants of the earth. And prior to that, there's this call for those who are classed as God's people to come out of the way, to come into the chambers, or if we were to use the language of John 14, to come into the place that Christ has been preparing for us. Also in Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 3, Seek you the Lord, all you meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Uh, the great description of the church. Seek, seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be that you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Now, clearly the implication is there that those who do do judgment, that seek righteousness and seek meekness, that can be hidden in the day of the Lord's wrath, the day of the Lord's anger. Another clear reference. In Luke 17, we told there that as it was in the days of Noah, in verse 26, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. Now, there's a number of ways this can be applied, but it's interesting if you look at the groups of people that existed in the days of Noah. First of all, we have those who perished in the flood, the wicked. Then there was those who were preserved through the flood, i.e. Noah and his family. But that's also analogous to those that are preserved or sealed during the time of tribulation. We're specifically told in Revelation 7 that 144,000 Jews will be protected and sealed, that they will go through this time. Just as Noah and his family went through the flood and they were set, they were protected, so the 144,000, we're told, will go through the tribulation. But then there's a third category. At the time of the flood, there was also the ones who were removed prior to the flood, prior to the judgment coming. Now, in this case, it was Enoch, as we've already seen, who was raptured. Now, somebody may object and say, yeah, but Enoch's just one person. Well, yeah, but so is the body of Christ. We are just one body. And just as Enoch was removed prior to the judgment coming, so the church will also be removed prior to God's judgment coming upon this world. Okay, let's uh, draw it to a close. I just want to look quickly at a Jewish wedding because there's some lessons we can learn in this. The name in uh, Hebrew is Kiddushan for marriage. Uh, it means sanctification, which is an interesting term in itself. In First Thessalonians 4.3, it says that God's will for us is our sanctification. In other words, our marriage, our joining together to him. And it also says, and abstaining from fornication. It's interesting that in that verse, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, it has this idea of being set apart and abstaining from fornication. It links the whole idea to that of marriage. And that's God's will for us. Now, with a Jewish wedding, you have initially the ketubah, or the betrothal. Now, it's similar in some senses to our engagement, but it's far more serious, because the ketubah is actually a marriage contract between the groom and his bride. Now, what's interesting is that in the contract, the groom would undertake to give all that he has in order to provide for every need of his bride. Not only while he's alive, but also in the event of his death. Now, isn't that incredible? Because what has Jesus promised to do? Well, he undertakes for everything we need. He's promised to supply all our needs. You see, that's part of the contract. And again, not just while he's alive, but in the event of his death. Well, actually, Jesus, his death has secured our salvation. It's secured everything that we need. So just as with a Jewish betrothal, so we have been betrothed to Jesus. 
<clears throat> now, the groom and the bride mark this contract, this betrothal, this engagement, with a drinking together from a cup of wine. Now, it's interesting again because in Matthew 26, uh, Jesus at the Last Supper, we read, he took the cup and gave thanks. And gave it to them saying, drink you all of this, for this is my blood of the New Testament, the new agreement, the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you that I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And Jesus there referring to the marriage supper of the lamb and saying that when we celebrate, when we drink this drink, it's always to be looking forward to that time when we will drink it together. The bride and the groom being brought back together. So just as with a Jewish couple, they would mark this covenant with this drinking of the cup together. So we have done effectively, and we do as a memorial every time we celebrate communion. Now, another thing that happens, it's very customary for the Shatan, the groom, and the Kayla, the bride in the Hebrew, to remain apart during the time that leads up to the wedding day. Again, during that time, the groom goes back to the father's house to prepare a room for his bride. Now, typically, they would build an annex onto the side of the house. Just as John uh, John 14 tells us, Jesus said there again, In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, I just wonder whether the disciples just got a glimpse of the excitement of this. I, I can't help but feel that if Jesus is saying this to the disciples, there must be some real excitement in his heart as he's saying, you know, I'm going to go back to my father's house and I'm going to prepare a place for you to come and be with me. Imagine how excited a groom would be saying that to his bride. And Jesus was saying exactly that to his bride, that he's going to prepare a place and he's going to come and receive us to that place. Now, another interesting part of the Jewish wedding for the bride is that while the groom is away preparing this place in the father's house, that the bride then undergoes a number of different ceremonies and so on. But one of them is referred to as the mikvah or the bath, a ritual bath, uh, where she would cleanse herself uh, spiritually, but also getting rid of any worldly uh, aspects whatsoever. So specifically, she would wash and get rid of any man-made things such as jewelry and nail polish and so on. She would be with without spot and blemish, getting ready for a wedding day. And as part of that, she's also immersed in water. Now, lots of lovely pictures that come out of this, um, but she's also supervised through this by somebody, a chaperone, somebody who will help her make sure that everything is done correctly. Well, isn't that just like the church? You know, in Ephesians 5, we're told, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. Now, we've been given the Holy Spirit to be our helper, to help us through this process of being cleansed as we are washed by the water of the word, as we get ready to be presented to our groom, again, without spot or blemish. Paul carries on and says in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. But then he says this incredible thing. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What Paul says is that 
actually the whole concept and basis of marriage is all about Christ being united to his church. Marriage in the very first instance was all about Christ and his church. The reason the universe and everything that is therein was created was to find an eternal companion for Jesus. That's what God wanted to do. There's a great book by a man called Paul Bilheimer called Destined for the Throne. It's worth getting a copy and reading. He explains how God has engineered things through the ages and so that Christ can have his bride. It's just a wonderful um, plan and picture that God has worked through all of time. Uh, and we see right from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden, just as the bride, as, as Eve was taken out of Adam's side, so the church effectively is taken out of Christ's side. As Adam gave himself for his bride, remember Eve sinned. Eve took of the fruit that she shouldn't have taken of and she ate it. Adam did what he did willingly and knowingly. He joined his wife in her predicament in order to rescue her. If you remember, if you look in Timothy, we're told that Adam was not deceived. In other words, Adam knew exactly what he was doing when he ate of the fruit, but he did it to rescue his bride. And Jesus, in like manner, enters into our predicament. He was born into this world. He came into this world and gave his life to rescue and to redeem and purchase his bride. What a lovely picture in all of this. Again, just as the Jewish bride would have a helper so we have the holy spirit well then we get to the hoopah that's a great word isn't it it just it's the wedding itself the wedding proper and at the time appointed the groom would return but it wouldn't just be a kind of a sneaking up thing there's going to be the shouting and there's the blast of a ram's horn and he comes to claim his bride and take her back to his father's house to the place that he's prepared once again, we go back to First Thessalonians 4 because we're told there that when our heavenly bridegroom comes back for his bride, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, just like at a Jewish wedding, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Again, the blowing of the, the shofar, the ram's horn. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And again, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And we get to go back with Jesus for our wedding day. Just incredible picture that we see. It concludes the Jewish wedding with a seven-day feast. This ceremony that would just last. Now, for the church, we're going to get a seven-year feast. While we're in heaven, during the time that these events are unfolding on earth and the judgment is being poured out on earth, we get to spend this time with our Lord in heaven. At the end of that time... There's a wedding blessing for the Jews at the end of the seven days. A wedding blessing, the Sheva Brasho, is pronounced. And this blessing, there's a number of things, very interesting, the things that are, in, that are part of this. Um, but we find the same thing occurs for the church. At the end of this period of seven years, just preceding the second coming, in Revelation 19, verse 6, we read this. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. What a declaration and shout. It says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called 
unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Now, that group that are making this declaration, these are the guests, the ones that are invited to come to the wedding. Now, from Revelation, we understand that these will be those who are saved during that tribulation time. They won't be part of the bride of Christ, but they will be saved if they put their trust in Jesus during the tribulation. But they're the ones that are not part of the bride, but they make this declaration. They say, we're told, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So we get the church in heaven. We have this wonderful wedding ceremony. This blessing is pronounced at the end of this time. And then the church will return with Jesus and Jesus will establish his kingdom on earth. In Matthew 22, verse 2, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son. I'll let you read the parable of the account and uh, study it in detail if you want to. But very clearly, God is the father. Jesus is the heavenly bridegroom and the church is his bride. You see, there is a certain king, God the father, who's made a marriage for his son. And he's planned it and interwoven it into the history of this world. And it's an incredible, incredible thing. Just in closing, there's some lessons from Jeremiah that we can learn. In the book of Jeremiah, we find that Israel were heading for judgment. Jeremiah prophesied, uh, warning them of what was going to come. Uh, the priests had rejected God's word. False prophets were promising, uh, promising and prophesying peace. Just like we have even within the church today. People say, oh, there won't be judgment coming and the tribulation won't happen and so on. And we're going to conquer the world and all these various erroneous and uh, heretical ideas. You see, just as it is now, it was in Jeremiah's day and they denied that judgment was coming. And they were burning incense and embracing idolatry, just as is happening in many aspects and many church groups today. They're getting into all of these sensual things and so on. But with Jeremiah, God promised that the faithful, if they were to leave their homes and go to the place he prepared, would be spared the judgment to come. And they did. Those that were faithful left. They went to Babylon. They were protected and preserved. And eventually they came back and inherited the land. And it's just the same as it will be for the church. Those that are faithful, those that put their trust in Jesus, go to the place that he's prepared for them, eventually will come back and will inherit the earth, just as Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, talking about the meek inheriting the earth. In Jeremiah 6.17, there's this kind of question that's put forward. It says, also, I will set watchmen over you, saying, hearken unto the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not hearken. Well, sadly, there are many within the church today that choose not to listen to the sound of the trumpet. They deny the reality of the rapture, even though there's an abundance of scriptures, as we've already seen. And even though Jesus warned that there would be those that would come in these days that would deceive people and lead people astray, that there will be false Christs and false prophets and so on. Jesus repeatedly warned us to take heed, to watch and to pray and so on. <clears throat> Jesus says in Luke 21, take heed to yourself, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare, it shall come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. 
Watch you therefore, this is the verse we looked at earlier, and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. This is just an incredible thing. As I said earlier, the rapture of the church should be one of the most talked about topics within the church. It's so exciting. It's so wonderful. God has done so much in getting ready for this incredible event, the marriage of his son and all of these things that we've been looking at. What's our response? Well, there's a great summary given to us in Titus chapter 2, picking up verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. What is our blessed hope? It's that looking for the great and glorious appearing of God, our Saviour, Jesus. That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. This world is not our home. These earthquakes and these terrorist attacks and all these things that go on that surround our lives that have become so normal, yet are so abnormal. But they're such a part of our lives today that people get consumed with their concern and their fear over these things but for us what hope we've got and this is why we should be looking it's referred to as our blessed hope in philippians 3 13 to 14 we read there brethren paul says i count not myself to have apprehended i I don't understand everything i haven't got everything all figured out but he says but this one thing i do forgetting those things which are behind And it's a great time at the beginning of a new year to do just that, to forget all the stuff that's gone before and reach forth unto those things which are before, those things which are ahead of us. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says it's a prize to be obtained, to be run for, to be reaching out. You know, yesterday I was watching the athletics and there was this, I uh, forget the name of the Scottish chap, uh, he came second, but only by one second. You know, these guys were running, they wanted a win, they really were trying hard to, to win, they, they were doing the, the cross country. You know, and the enthusiasm, the effort, the determination. Well, for us, this is a prize that we're going for. We should be running this race, as Paul says in Corinthians, to win. We should be running to obtain this prize. And Paul says, I'm pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling or the upward calling of God. The rapture is a prize to be had. And that's our destination. That's where we're going. And I pray that as we go into this new year, as we get ready, the rapture could occur at any moment in time. And we need to be, as a bride, getting ready, putting aside and putting away everything of this world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should be living soberly, righteously and godly in this present world as we get ready to meet our bridegroom. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons that you teach us. We thank you for the things you've revealed and we thank you for the incredible plan and the privilege that it will be to meet you, to see you face to face and to be part of your bride, to be able to spend eternity with you. We thank you that your love was so great for us that you gave up heaven and you came to this earth to die in our place that we could be saved, that you came to redeem and rescue your bride. 
Oh, so Lord, we just pray. You just, just, just fill us, Lord, with joy, just to overflowing. Lord, may we be edified by these things and encouraged. And Lord, may we comfort one another with these words. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.